Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Bob Spitz about Deary, The Remarkable Life of Julia Child, which is now out in hardback. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. Uh, biography really comes as the second point in my career. I began by um, actually discovering and managing Bruce Springsteen in the early 1970s, uh, playing guitar with him for a while and um, acting as his manager through the first couple of albums, and then managing Elton John uh, in the late 1970s, and then retiring to uh, to write. So for the last 30 years, I've been a journalist of sorts, and uh, in the last, I, I would say, 10 years or so, I have... Uh, Turned my attention solely to biography. Mm-hmm. I was Bob Dylan's biographer um, about 20 years ago. Um, and, of course, uh, I wrote a biography of the Beatles that people have called the definitive biography. And uh, now, finally, my biography of Julia Child, Geary. Uh, so um, I've kind of moved into that realm of just considering myself a biographer. It's taken a long time. <laughs> Um, you actually knew Julia Child and worked with her. What drew you to her story, and what made you decide to write about her in particular? Uh, I met Julia Child in 1992. I was in Sicily writing a series of articles for American magazines, and a friend of mine at uh, the Italian Tourist Board called and said, would you like to be an escort for an older woman? And I, <laughs> I thought, lady, you know, I don't do that kind of work. <laughs> And she said, oh, too bad, you know, it's Julia Child. And I said, well, you know, I'll be right over. This is great. Um, Julia was traveling around Sicily trying to get a purchase on the food there. She wanted to see what, you know, restaurants were cooking. And she was getting up there in age. She was 82 years old. She needed an arm to hold on to. And I was that arm. And so for the next three and a half or four weeks, we traveled around Sicily just talking and eating, um, and I realized at that point that I was in the presence of a remarkable, not just a remarkable woman, but a remarkable human being, mm-hmm. someone who had not only changed the way we eat here in America, but had changed our culture. And, and that, to me, is the most important thing about writing a biography someone who is not just an important person in our history, but someone who went on to change the culture. And and so when we got back to the States, I realized that um, I would like to write a biography of Julia. She was in the midst of another biography with someone else. But about three months later, I got a call from her, and she begged me to pursue um, my book. She felt that the people she had been working with at the time weren't getting the story right. She said they felt it felt like you know she was already dead, and and that disturbed Julia. So um, I, I at that point had been involved with the Beatles, and I thought that would take really two 
two or three years of my time. It took nine years. And unfortunately, Julia had died um, over that time. So, you know, it, it took some time to really get this book off the ground, but I always knew it was a book I would write. I think we've only had one biographer on the show who actually met his subject. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about any, if there were any challenges that came up while you were writing because you were writing about someone that you knew and had met. You know, actually writing about someone you you had known and met uh, was a huge benefit for me mm. because uh, I had her voice in my ear the whole time. Mm. And it's not the voice you think. It, it's not that Julia Child warble that everybody's familiar with. It was a different voice. It was the voice of the subject, the subject who answers questions in a certain way, uh, someone you know who is confident about how they talk about their own work. And so when I encountered other people along the way, other uh, other sources of mine, I had Julia's voice in my ear that would always cool me in as to whether that was an accurate voice, an accurate source. I, I thought it was a great benefit for me, and, and it, it, it gave me a whole different aspect of her. It, it, you know, that the time that I had with her in Sicily was really, it was concentrated time. Um, for any writer to have three or four weeks with a subject is such a luxury, and it, it allowed me to get to know who she was, how she articulated herself, and, and that paid off all through my research. Uh, we're going to talk about the specifics of her life in a second, but I kind of wanted to ask a broad question. I knew very little about her before reading this. And what struck me was how her story, even prior to her fame, it reads as being almost revolutionary now when you read it. And I can't imagine how unconventional it must have seemed at the time when in the mid-50s for someone to get married when they're 30 and for them to start a new career at 50. And how unconventional was she for someone of her time period? Uh, Julia was a true original. Um, she was someone who, um, who knew she had something remarkable to give, but just didn't know what it was. So that when she was 40, this was a woman who at the age of 40, not only didn't know how to cook, but people said she couldn't even boil water correctly. And at the age of 50 was someone who, um, had never been on TV and didn't even own a TV set. Uh, this is a woman who came on TV and became an icon at the age of 51. And I thought, you know, I, I always use the word remarkable when I talk about Julia. It's part of the, uh, the subtitle of the book, The Remarkable Life of Julia Child. And I give a lot of thought to that work. She's a woman who... Um, reinvented herself completely at midlife. And that's extraordinary. Um, it, it really is. It's hard to do, uh, not just to reinvent yourself and to have a new job, but to take the culture by storm, to transform the culture, and to really become an icon. Um, you know, to live, to live almost 50 years and do that is, is an extraordinary feat. So that intrigued me from the, the beginning with this book. I really felt that um, this was a woman who had a game plan somewhere, didn't know how to achieve it, but kept working toward it, kept working toward it until, you know, she had she had hurdled all the obstacles, and and that's what I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, she grew up in California. What was her childhood like? 
You know, everybody thinks that Julia Child came out of nowhere, but she she was a very she had a very charmed life as a kid. Um, she grew up in Pasadena, right off something called Millionaire's Row, but not too far off. Her father was incredibly wealthy. He was one of Pasadena's leading lights, and this was at the turn of the century when that town was uh, really populated by um, all kinds of luminaries in American in- industry. Um, she grew up in a house of servants, butlers, maids. She had a uh, swimming pool, tennis courts in the backyard, uh, country clubs. She went to polo matches. But all of this kind of um, bounced off Julia. Julia felt that um, there was some greater good to be had in life, and it didn't come from being a rich girl. In fact, um, she referred to herself quite derogatorily as a social butterfly when she was a kid, and that really bothered her. She she wanted something greater. She wanted to contribute. She wrote in her diary, and I found a diary of hers, one of those young girl diaries that have, you know, pink leather red on them and a little key that you unlock, and she wrote that, you know, I, I have something unique, something extraordinary to give. I just don't know what it is. So this lap of luxury she grew up in was kind of tossed aside, and um, she, she 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 wanted to leave it as quickly as she could. And I think it does provide an interesting portrait of an artist who has yet to find what their art is throughout the book, That, and especially in the beginning part when she goes to Smith and when she joins the Foreign Service and kind of doesn't know what, she can't quite figure out what she wants to do. I thought that was a really fascinating portrait. Um, so how did she wind up cooking? Oh, Julia's circuit of cooking was really winding and, uh, and, and long. Uh, she, you know, she, she graduated from Smith, uh, where she had majored in carousing and did wind up in, in the south of, um, the Southeast Asia of all places during World War Two. You know, she, uh, she, was looking for something and couldn't figure out what to do. So she joined the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. And not only joined the OSS, but wound up working for Wild Bill Donovan, who was the head of the OSS. And um, she, she she really couldn't find her, her raison d'etre there because she didn't want to be a bureaucrat. But she married a bureaucrat, Paul Child, who she met in the Southeast Asia. So um, when he was posted to France after the war, um, it really held all the keys for Julia. That's where she discovered food. Um, the very first day that they landed in France, Paul drove to a restaurant to introduce Julia to her first French meal. It was in a little place called Restaurant La Couronne in um, Rouen, which is um, a city in Normandy where um, Joan of Arc had been burned at the stake in 1471. And uh, this was the oldest restaurant in all of France. Um, Julie didn't know much about food at that time. This was in 1948. But when she put that first forkful of Sol Mounier in her mouth that Paul had ordered for her, that was it right there. That was absolutely the beginning for the woman that we knew as Julia Child. She um, she discovered her calling in life 
with that fork. And she always said it was the most exciting meal of her life. That was the beginning right there. Mm-hmm. So Mastering the Art of French Cooking was a collaboration. Can you talk a bit about her collaborators, how she met them, and also their process of putting the book together, as it was just an enormous undertaking? Mm-hmm. Even after Julia uh, went to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, she still wasn't sure of what she was going to do with her life. Um, she knew, I think, that she wanted to be a cooking teacher of some sort, but she really couldn't get that together in Paris. Uh, it, was, it was hard for her. And she didn't want to be the, the wife of a bureaucrat. So um, one night at a uh, bureaucratic party for the State Department, she was introduced to a woman named Simone Beck, uh, who was nicknamed Simca, and um, she told Julia that she and a, and a friend were trying to write a um, short cookbook of French recipes for American women. Now, Simca was a, a French woman and spoke very poor English. But um, she asked Julia, perhaps, you know, you could help us and, and figure out how to do this. Well, that was all Julia needed to hear. She was looking for a project like this. And the project was an extraordinary one. Simca had maybe six or eight hundred recipes that were part of her family. And when Julia saw them, she knew that this would make a fantastic cookbook. The other woman, the third woman in the party, was a woman named Louisette Bertol, also a French woman who didn't speak the best English. And uh, Julia realized that this project would really rest on her shoulders. She had to make these recipes come alive, and uh, and she did. <laughs> she did very well with that. Simca mm-hmm. um, was her collaborator, really, for the rest of her life. Well, we bet also in the background, but that was a truly remarkable, um, a, a, a remarkable uh, relationship that uh, persevered for uh, for maybe forty years. Yeah. And the research they did was staggering, how they would test the recipes and make sure that they would work with American products. I thought that was incredible. Well, you know, Julia was relentless when it came to testing recipes. If she needed to test a recipe, she cooked something 40, maybe 50 times. She always felt that it had to have the scientific proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, to Julia, that meant, you know, going over it again and again and again mastering, mastering, and mastering what was an airtight recipe. So, you know, Julia was relentless in the way she pursued these recipes. Mm -hmm. So what was the state of American cooking during this time in the 1950s and early 60s? When Julia got back from France and and landed in Washington, which is where she and Paul came to, uh, they were appalled at the state of cooking in the United States. In fact, they couldn't even find any restaurants to go out to eat in because they couldn't put that food in their mouth. But sure, they had been spoiled in Paris, but um, the state of cooking in the United States at that time was really um, convenience food, fast food. Um, not the fast food we know that you, we have today, but basically at that time, where the people were cooking casseroles, um, franks and bean casseroles, or tuna noodle, ca- tuna noodle casseroles. Um, a lot of things were being pushed upon American homemakers, such as, you know, fish sticks or um, Swanson's TV dinners. 
uh, jello molds with all kinds of things popped in them. And, you know, Julia just couldn't buy. She knew that something had to change, that food for Americans had to be delicious, made with the freshest of ingredients. And she was determined to to change people's eating habits, um, which wasn't easy. You know, in those days, it was re- it was really tough. So um, it, it was hard for her to introduce French cooking into uh, the American culture. Mm-hmm. So what made Mastering the Art of French Cooking a cookbook that was different from its predecessors? Um, Mastering the Art of French Cooking was... The cookbook wasn't different from its predecessors, so much as it was Julia Child who taught people how to cook from that uh, cookbook. She um, she was on TV, and she was someone who really caught the American fascination. She wasn't slick. She didn't have media training to um, to change that warbly voice of hers. She didn't have a battalion of stylists. Um, in fact, I think Julie wore the same three blouses through 30 years of being on TV. But um, she went on TV with these recipes and taught American homemakers how to cook simply but deliciously by looking them right in the eye and just being herself. And, and so that's what did the trick. It was the fact that it, was, it wasn't anybody else. It wasn't some slick TV person. It was this woman, Julia Child, who was ordinary, like your neighbor or maybe a maiden aunt, who would just help you through the recipe. And that's why people gravitated to them. They were uh, they believed in her, and they trusted her, and they were willing to give these rather difficult recipes a try and, uh, and you know, to, to introduce them into their own family. Because mm-hmm. she really made cooking look fun, right? Make what? I'm sorry. She, she really made cooking look fun, right? Julia made cooking look fun. She, um, you know, she would make mistakes on TV. And people thought, oh, you know, you can make mistakes like Julia Child and cook. Julia made a lot of those mistakes on purpose. Um, she didn't make mistakes while she cooked. But she made them on, on TV because she wanted to show homemakers that you could make mistakes in the kitchen. And this is how you rescue them. And that was so comforting for so many people who were unsure of how to cook. Um, that's what she did. She she really wanted everybody to just be more comfortable, just to take it easy, to relax, to trust her, and to find the fun in cooking again. Mm-hmm. And and that took some doing. Deary opens with a beautifully and dramatically written scene of Julia's first appearance on WGBH. <laughs> it's right. it's incredible opening. I loved it. Um, and how did she actually land the show on WGBH? You know, Julia wasn't made for TV. She, um, as I said before, she had never been on TV. She didn't own a TV. But she had to promote her book. So um, she was invited onto a show called I've Been Cooking. In, um, in Boston. And it was on what they called at the time educational TV. Now, educational TV at the time was in the dark ages. It really was. It, it was basically in, in different cities, and not many cities, a network, uh, not even a network, a station where a local college professors would do their lectures 
or if there was a, a symphony orchestra, the symphony orchestra would play, but there'd be no voiceover. You wouldn't even know what was going on. So Julie appeared on the show, and um, they expected somebody who would just lecture you on cooking. Instead, Julia said, you know, I want to make an omelet. Well, wow. That, that floored them. Nobody had ever demonstrated an omelet on an educational TV station like this. But she did it, and she caught on. In fact, you know, the phone lines lit up, and people thought, wow, this is great. We'd like to see more of it. So they offered her a TV show, her own TV show, 28 minutes, half hour, on cooking, however she'd like. She had no blueprint for it. She just winged it. She went on and she did this extraordinary demonstration of cooking where she was just herself. And, um, you know, it, it, it was just a fantastic thing. I mean, it caught on right away and, and people loved it. And she was pretty much on TV from then until she died, right? Because the, the TV would, would back up when it would reinforce what they published in the books. They would do tie-ins with that. Yeah, Julia was on TV for the next 45 yeah. years. Um, I, I think the most incredible thing about Julia's experience on television was this. When, when she started out, um, there was no educational TV network whatsoever. There were only about eight stations. Um, but WGBH thought that, you know, this woman cooking here was pretty interesting. So they took the tape, and they sent it out to a couple other stations. They didn't even know these stations. They just sent the tape um, saying, you might be interested in watching our show with this woman cooking. Well, a few stations put it on the air, a station in Dallas, a station in Rochester, New York. And that there is the exact beginning of the educational TV network. It was the beginning of syndication. The minute those two stations put Julia on the air, it was a network. It was called NET, National Educational Television. And that was the launch of PBS. Um, this was before Sesame Street, before Mr. Rogers, before Masterpiece Theater. It was Julia Child on a tape being sent from station to station to station. The beginning of NET, the beginning of PBS, and I find it completely remarkable. Mm -hmm. One of the things that surprised me about her was that she was so liberal, that she was advocating for Planned Parenthood from the 70s onward, which is particularly <laughs> fascinating given today's political climate. Um, and yet her father was very conservative as well. Um, can you talk a bit about her politics and her political involvement? Yeah, Julia was very political. Um, Paul kind of lit the spark in her. He, um, he was a very political guy. Julia had no... Uh, no political uh, inclination when she was younger, except for the fact that her father was a very conservative man. And in those days, you know, conservative was, you know, had to do with, with finances. But Julia's father, she always said, was to the right of Attila the Hun. <laughs> um, and so they never really saw eye to eye at all. Um, Paul initiated her in liberal causes, and Julia took up with it right away, and so it alienated her from her father, um, not just in in, in um, you know difference of opinion way, but in a very big way. They never saw eye to eye for the rest of their lives. Her father always felt that she was a failure because of her politics. 
uh, and, and never would give her the respect that she really desired from him. Um, she did support Planned Parenthood in a big way at a time when um, it, speaking out on politics in that regard had ruined many people's lives, such as uh, Dr. Scott and Anita Bryant, uh, both opposite sides of the aisle, but um, their careers were never the same again. Julia didn't care. She felt that Planned Parenthood was something that um, really needed to be saved and helped, and she put her, uh, not just her voice and her brand, but her time and her money behind it. And uh, she was one of the lucky ones. She um, she spoke her mind, and, uh, it, uh, and people were upset with her, but it really never hurt her career in any way, and she was very lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, biographies about women are often really defined by the relationships that the women had. And I think your book is very unique and then it covered, it's really an adventure story, which I think is wonderful. And I've kind of glossed over the involvement of Paul, but I, he enabled her a lot of her adventures in many ways. So can you talk about him a bit? Paul, he, uh, at a very young age when, uh, he was in his early thirties was already an accomplished individual. He was, a world-class painter. He had photographed with Steichen. He was friends with the Hemingways. He had been part of the Gertrude Stein Salon in Paris. Um, he spoke French fluently and, and had traveled all over the world. This was a guy who was the consummate Renaissance man. And when he met Julia, he thought, oh my, there's not too much going on there. Julia was really unformed at this time, and and Paul was interested in her, but felt she had a lot to learn. He he said that she was um, an empty vessel, and at that point he began filling up the tank. He kind of introduced her to literature, philosophy, politics, great art, poetry, and they formed together a really intellectual sophisticated bond. I mean, it was really a remarkable relationship that the two of them had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Paul, in his regard, was completely selfless, selfless where it came to Julia. You know, she, she began her career at the age of 50, and, and Paul was already close to 60 years old, and he decided to really step into the background, to become almost Mr. Julia Child, he was there to support her, to help her in every way he could, and um, and he did for the rest of his life. It was, it was a fantastic relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your thoughts on Julie and Julia? I thought Julie and Julia was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, for me, it, it was a treat because I had been researching the book for almost two years when I saw the movie, and within two minutes, I was convinced that um, that was Julia up on the screen that I was watching. I I thought Meryl Streep did a really fabulous job. And the parts that were drawn from my life in France, I thought were uh, really an inaccurate portrayal of Julia's story. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Julia wasn't satisfied with Julia and Julia, the book. Um, It's believed that she never met Julie Powell, that... um, their paths never crossed, but 
I, I discovered that wasn't true at all. In fact, her editor, Julia's editor, Jul- Judith Jones, told me that a meeting was set up between Julie Powell and, and Julia. And um, Julia was really intrigued by her. She, she you know, she, she first of all, she supported women cooking her entire life. It was a very important cause in her life that more people, more young women should be involved in the cooking scene. But um, also because more than that, she was intrigued because here was a young woman cooking her way through mastering the art of French cooking. And that isn't easy to do. Um, I don't know if you've ever cooked from that book, but it's not an easy book to cook from. Mm-hmm. Those are very difficult recipes. And uh, and the process is pretty complex. So Julia was eager to meet her. But when she did meet her, uh, she met a woman who she felt was not at all interested in food. She was more interested in becoming a media star. In fact, Julia felt she was completely disrespectful, not just to food, but to her as well. And the lights went out in her eyes. Uh, and, and Julia left that meeting very quickly and was and, and divorced herself from that book. So Miss Powell lost a very uh, important ally. Wow. Yeah, I was really struck by how um, Julia's not, I don't know that mentoring is the right word, but how she tried to, how she networked with younger cooks who were coming up in the 90s in Boston and how she reached out to them and, and patronized their restaurants and really encouraged different cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a bit about who she helped? Sure. Um, Julia was always interested in making sure that young people were brought into the cooking fold, and not just young people at home, but young professionals, always fascinated to make sure that they continued this cooking process long after she was gone. Um, Julia wasn't really taken with some of the um, the new food techniques. She felt that... Um, you really needed to train a lot before you could consider yourself a chef. Um, so she wasn't really taken with Nouvelle Cuisine. She felt there were too many hands on the plate. She felt the food was too precious. But in the 1990s, this whole movement of uh, new American cooking came up. And, and a lot of it really had its involvement in Boston, where she was. There was this movement of young chefs to their own restaurants. And Julia got involved because they weren't young people who had just come out of cooking school and went straight into opening up their own restaurant. But these were young people who had been trained in classic French cuisine. They really learned their craft well from people who had been cooking the Escoffier recipes for a long time. Uh, People like Jasper White, and uh, Gordon Hammersley and Jody Adams and Michaela Larson, uh, people who were making their names in the Boston area, but were very young. And they they went from cooking classic French recipes to putting their own stamp on recipes and tweaking them so that they weren't French per se anymore, but they were now called New American Cuisine. And Julia loved that. She thought it was fantastic, um, and she mentored them. She really did. They were her protégés. She um, kept them very close to her throughout the remainder of her life. 
she uh, wanted to make sure that people knew who they were, that they went to those restaurants, that those restaurants were doing well, and if those chefs needed any help, she was there to help them. So she was, she was already thinking to a time when she would be gone, and there would be a whole other, um, a whole other army of people cooking wonderful recipes, couched in French technique, but, you know, taking it somewhere else. She thought it was great. What do you see as her lasting legacy? Oh, Julie's lasting legacy is, is huge. She, um, you know, this wasn't a woman who just changed the way we ate. She, she changed the way we lived. She changed the way dinner times were in, in our homes. She changed the entire restaurant scene as we know it. She also changed, you know, how we see cooking on TV so that uh, it didn't just languish on educational TV, but lo and behold, you know, there was the Food Network and the Cooking Channel. This all sprang from Julia Child, one woman who in her mid-50s came from France and thought we needed to eat better, we needed to have fun when we ate, we needed to enjoy our food not just as fuel, but as poetry that we put in our mouth. And Julia's legacy is such that um, I think she was the, one of the greatest women of the 20th century, and she's given us so much joy in her in our in our, all of our lives. Do you have a favorite anecdote about her? Oh, my favorite anecdote about Julia is really uh, Thanksgiving uh, time. She, um, <laughs> Julia, Julia was a woman who was of the people. And what people didn't realize, a lot of people didn't realize, is that um, Julia's phone number was uh, in the Boston phone directory. So you could call Julia uh, at any point if you were having trouble with a recipe, she would answer the phone herself and talk you through it. And on Thanksgiving, people who had dinner with the child told me that Julia's phone would start ringing at uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon and ring continuously until 9 o'clock at night. People from all over the country called her saying, Julia, I, you know, my turkey isn't getting done. And Julia would talk them through the recipe. She would say, Oh, dearie, don't you worry. You just put that bird right up there on the counter. You know no, no one ever ate hot turkey before. <laughs> or she would solve their, the mystery of their lumpy mashed potatoes or that dreadful gravy they were making. Um, she was great. You could just call Julia. She'd answer the phone, and she'd talk you through the recipe herself. Fabulous woman. Thank you so much for talking with us today about Deary, the remarkable life of Julia Child. Any idea who you'll be writing about next? I do, actually. Uh, I am in the middle right now of uh, ghostwriting uh, Graham Nash's memoirs. From Graham Nash from Crosby, Sullivan and Nash. And it's a great story. It's, um, it's a story that I'm familiar with, having written about the Beatles. Uh, it starts with the Hollies in, in the U.K., and... Uh, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, of course, and Woodstock, and his affair with Joni Mitchell. And then in January, I um, am going to be the biographer of President Ronald Reagan. So uh, 
it's quite a book for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to a full-scale presidential biography. Oh, how exciting. It is. Well, thank you so much for doing the interview today. My pleasure. We've been speaking today with Bob Spitz about his new book, Deary, The Remarkable Life of Julia Child, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.